my big boy mic today. Check it out. I have never used a, a wire or a, a non-handheld mic. This is my first time, so I, I feel like I'm growing up. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my hands yet. They might start, you know, doing one of these things. I'll stuff it in my pocket. All right. Last week, Terry talked with you guys about um, testing and trials and the things that we go through and, and talked about how God's faithful. And so today, I want to kind of tag on to the end of what Terry talked about last week. And essentially, um, well, let me share this. So when I was in Puyallup, uh, I had a pastor who said, hey, if, for a month, as a church, we should begin just praying over our city. And I thought, that's, that's super awesome. And he says, hey, let's, uh, let's rent an airplane, and we'll fly over the city, and we'll pray. That sounds great, man. I like airplanes. I've never really been in one, but that, that sounds fun. So we went, and we had breakfast and at, at the little Puyallup airport there. And uh, after we were done, we walked out to the runway, and there's this little airplane parked out on the runway. And you know, it looked like a fairly normal size, like the size of a, you know, large SUV or something. You know, these ones you see at these little airports. And I'm looking at this thing thinking, oh, that's, you know, we can fit in that. And it was weird because as you got closer, it got smaller. <laughs> and by the time we got out there, I'm thinking, how do you fit four people in that? But we just shoehorned ourselves in there and it was absolutely like a glorified rowboat with wings, and it had a roof just to kind of keep the rain off of you, and it, I mean, really, the seats inside this thing were what you find in a rowboat for fishing, right? Those little pop-up kind of chairs, and we're, we're squeezed into these things, and, and the thing starts going down the runway, and that's when I started praying. <laughs> we're on the ground still, but we're here to pray. I'm just going to start now. That thing lifted off the ground, and as the, the ground was disappearing quickly, I realized, you know, this thing is made out of nothing more than, like, popsicle sticks and pop cans. I mean, this thing is, it, it's a rowboat with a motor on the front and wings. And it was, it was a little scary, and I asked the pilot, hey, man, uh, where's the parachutes? I mean, I'm sure I can, like, grab the seat and use it as a life raft, but that's hard ground below us. I'm not sure floating is the important part. And he says, well, there's not, there's not any parachutes. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you keep parachutes in these things? Well, as we were going along, we were praying. We flew over the city, and uh, uh, there was some, some turbulence. Wind kept hitting this, this rowboat plane and shaking it all over the place. And I don't get scared real easy, and I like the idea of flying. I always wanted to be a pilot, never, never did it, but uh, this thing would, was shaking somewhat violently, and I asked the pilot, is, is this normal? And he's like, yeah, yeah, this is, this, this is turbulence, it, it happens, and we'll be okay. Uh-huh, we'll be okay with no parachutes, and, and uh, yeah, I'll just keep praying. So I kept praying, and, and I asked him a few questions about kind of what was going on, and, and he said, you know, the faster you go, and the more aerodynamic your plane is, the less turbulence really affects you. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Can we land? Because this thing is not aerodynamic at all. It's like, yeah, it's like flying a rowboat. There's no aerodynamics. And we're not going fast at all. We're going like 
90 or something. I mean, that's not fast for the air, but it's enough to generate lift and, and get you going where you need to go. But today what I want to talk with you about is how to successfully navigate the turbulence that we experience in our lives, right? We all go through testing. We all go through trial. See, I kind of view testing, uh, there's a little bit of semantics here, but testing is when God, God does something in your life to shape you, knowing that you're going to succeed and come out the other side, right? Trials are when life just hands it to you. Most of them, neither one of them are ever necessarily fun, and most of the time we just don't know the difference, right? But the reality of it is, Scripture paints a great picture for us of how we can navigate through trials and testing, the turbulence of those things that, that come with that, how we can navigate through that without being beat, beat up by it, right? Without being, being buffeted by it to the point where we feel shaken, right? So that's what we want to talk about today. Um, anyway, before we get going too far, let's pray. All right, Father, we just come before you today, Lord, and we come with all sorts of uh, different situations and scenarios right now, Father, some being tested, some having trials in their lives that they never expected to show up. Lord, we're all in a different season right now. Father, thank you for your word that provides an anchor for our soul. Lord, that will lead us and guide us as we navigate through these things. So Lord, today I pray that as, as we get into your word that you would settle your scripture down deep in our soul. And Lord, that as we leave here today, uh, we'd be able to leave with some tools for uh, not being buffeted by the things life hands us, Lord, but that we'd be able to feel like we can join with you and be successful and come out the other side, changed for your glory. In your name, amen. amen. So some 25 years after Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, the church was under a lot of heavy persecution by the emperor Nero. Uh, Peter wrote to the churches around Rome right around 62 AD, and essentially these churches were under such heavy persecution, people were being killed, they were being, being chased down, um, and uh, during this time there was a lot of home churches meeting in, in Rome, and, and Peter refers to it as Babylon. It was kind of the, the undercover name for Rome among the churches. And so the church is being persecuted heavily, and Peter writes to the church to address the struggles that they're going through. And in fact, we can kind of sum up what, um, what Peter was writing about if we look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, he says this, Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is kind of a synopsis of what Peter's writing about, that the church is going through a lot of struggles right now, and they should expect to go through these things, because they were essentially approaching it like, what is going on? Why are we being, being persecuted? Why are we under this trial? And Peter's saying, hey, this is, we should expect this. We should expect it. Right, Jesus told us before he was crucified that we're going to face trials, that we're going to go through stuff. But he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. Right? And, and essentially, Peter's writing to the church to talk to them about, about their trial. And so we're going we're gonna to dive into 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 
starting at verse, uh, I think we'll start at verse 3, or we'll start at verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2, and let's see what, what Peter has to say here about trials. He says this, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not, as, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Right? So, so Peter's writing, and first he's addressing the leaders of the church. And this example that he explains here of what leaders should be like in the church, I just want to say to you that this is, this is what we aim for. We want to be this to you. And I hope your experience at Crossroads and with the body of Christ is always this. Right, that we want to serve you, and we, we do this because we genuinely love you and we care about you. And you have a senior pastor, Pastor Terry. He loves you so much, so much. So keep it, keep moving on. Chapter verse four. He says, "And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away." Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a lion, like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. Resist him, it says. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same suffering you are that you've experienced by your brotherhood is being experienced by all the rest of the brothers in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. See, this is the church that's under, under extreme trial. Let me explain a little bit of what that looks like. So imagine it's tax time, right? We just got through tax season. I think, I think we've got a, what do we have, a few more days or, or maybe not anymore. I don't even remember. We've got, we got like a month left. Everybody's like banking on that month. How many just like wait till the last day? <laughs> a couple of it, yeah. So imagine tax season's coming up and, and uh, the tax collectors show up at your house Right, a guy, he's got two Roman, Roman guards with him. He shows up and he knocks on your door. And uh, he says, hey, uh, it's time to pay taxes. 10%, pony it up. And you're thinking, man, that's a lot of money. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay my taxes. And he says, oh, by the way, you know, your neighbor Dave, you know, he lives down the way a little ways. He said you were a Christian. He just mentioned that you were, you know, one of the followers of the way. That's what the church was called back then, right? We are followers of the way, but Jesus is the way, right? The truth and the life. And essentially, he would say, I know you're one of these followers, so I think we're going to tack like maybe 30% onto that, right? Because we know that you want to you honor the emperor, and so let's just tack some onto that. And you're feeling the weight of this, right? Now all of a sudden, this is like, man, this is, this is difficult. And then he says, but here's the deal. All you've got to do, just, just renounce your faith. Just, just tell me that 
You don't believe all this mumbo jumbo about Jesus rising from the dead. You, all you got to do is just, just walk away from this right now. And you know what? We'll just make that extra 60% just go away. What do you do? Man, that's hard. But then they take it a step further. Oh, you know what? I know your family's here. You got little, little Steve here. If you don't renounce this, little Steve's going to watch his mom be eaten by a lion. So now you have a decision to make. This is what Rome would do to persecute the church. We get freaked out when we go to the mall and somebody pulls into our parking spot and we think, oh man, they saw my Christian fish sticker on the back and they're persecuting me. But the reality of it is, Christians around the world are facing tough stuff. We face tough stuff sometimes too. But back at this point, they were facing some really tough stuff. And that's why the church is being, being pushed out, right? Essentially, the, the Roman government had a list of religions and gods that were acceptable to worship. And when Nero took power, he said, you know what? Christianity is not on, not on that list. That you are free to persecute them however you wanted to, right? And persecution took place in, in, in different places, not all at the same time, but it was in different regions at various times, but it was going on and it was serious. So Peter essentially is writing to the church about trials and he, he tells them, here's how you can streamline your life in order to not take such a beating from the trials that you're going through. Because we're all going to go through trials, and there's a way that we can essentially get behind. God's Word lines up in front of us like a blocker, right? And we, He tells us here how we can line up behind Him so that we're not being hit by the stuff that's going by. Does that make sense? Right? We're learning how to streamline our lives so that the turbulence doesn't beat us apart. So here's some things that, that, that Peter says. The first one, he says, submit to the covering that God has placed on your life. If we look uh, the previous two chapters to chapter 5, Peter spends that whole time talking about submission to the authority that God's placed over, over the church and over us. Right? He's talking about how to submit to the authority God's placed in your life. Right? Understand this. I know that the, the topic of submission has wounded a lot of people. There are a lot of hearts that have some serious stuff, some serious weight because of this topic. And so I don't want to spend too much time poking at it with a stick. It's a sensitive subject. But I do want to say this. First of all, God absolutely loves you, and, and He loves your heart. And I believe there's a passage in Scripture that, that talks about the, the issue of submission, the issue of coming underneath an authority in such a profound way. It's Philippians 2, 3, and 4, and it says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider the other as more important than yourself. As someone being led, if I do that, I am coming underneath the authority God's placed over me. And as a leader, if I do that, I am leading righteously. It covers both areas. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider the other as more important than yourself. This covers both sides of it, right? 
See, submission kind of boils down to this. It's knowing when to yield. It's knowing when to yield. But when we lead like that, and when we follow like that, we're lining up with God's heart for being led. God created essentially an order, right? And it's to create unity in our families. It's to create unity in our places we work. It's to create unity in the church, right? God wants us to come underneath these authorities, not so that we can have a thumb on us, but because he wants unity and he wants to bless you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider the other as more important than yourself. And I love that there's a promise that's attached to this. It says, it's, let, me, let me find it back here. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He's saying that when you submit to the authority he's placed on you, that you're submitting to God. But then he says this, that he may exalt you in due time. This is a promise. If you feel like you've ever been squished by the topic that we're, that's at hand right now, just know that when you line up under God's word and you do the, the tough thing sometimes, that God promises he's got your back. That in due time, he will exalt you. He'll lift you up, right? There's a promise there that when we line up, God's, God's got your back. The next thing that he says is this. He says, he says cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. See, we have to settle in our soul that God loves us and has our best in store. We have to settle that issue. Because when we don't have that settled and when we're struggling with something, our first thought isn't to cast our cares on Him. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. This year, I told you last time, uh, I talked with you that um, the thing that the Lord put on my heart this year to gain an understanding about is his love for me, right? Everything that I'm looking at in scripture this year, everything that I'm, I'm teaching, everything that I'm doing, I'm viewing through a lens of God's love because I'm trying to understand for myself, God, how much do you love me? And it's huge. I mean, I know that it's huge. I've read, I've read his word. I mean, the descriptions are amazing, but I want to own it. Because when I own it, when I'm going through a trial or a test, I know that the first place I can run is to the one who loves me and cares about me and genuinely has my best in store, right? And the same for you guys. We have to come to the place where we own it because when we own God's love, when we own that he truly loves me, regardless of my failures, regardless of my flaws, my faults, when we can come to the place where we believe wholeheartedly God has his best in store, then he will become the first one that we run to when we're struggling. Because he wants to carry our burdens. He wants to shoulder the weight we weren't created to shoulder. Right? And we carry a lot of weight, don't we? There are some burdens in here that are unbelievable. And God would say to you, I love you. Please let me have that. You weren't created to carry that. The next thing that he says here, he says to be sober. And there's kind of two things he puts together. Be sober and be vigilant. And I'm going to pack these things together and to kind of explain what he's saying here. When we are going through tests and trials and, and 
rough circumstances, sometimes we have a tendency when the fog begins to set in, right? We were going full speed ahead towards a destination, towards a vision, and then it seems like sometimes in life that, that the fog sets in, right? And we get to the place where we become apathetic because we're going through so much stress and so much pressure that we remember that there's cliffs in front of us, our boat's stuck in the fog, and what do we do? We put down anchor. And we just, we just hope that it'll go away soon. And essentially what we do, sometimes we have a tendency, what, Paul, or what Peter's addressing is that we'll medicate ourselves, right? We want to take something that's going to make the pain go away. Some turn to drinking, right? Some turn to phones, right? We can medicate ourselves with more than just alcohol. Anything we can think of, to get that dopamine flowing where our body is saying, I don't have to focus on the pain, now I can focus on something else. That's the stuff that, that Peter's addressing. Is It's not just alcohol, but he says be sober. Right? Essentially he's saying, don't do something to take your mind off of what's going on. But let me address a couple of things about, about drinking real quick while we're on the subject. There's four things, four principles that I think we need to always keep in mind when it comes to alcohol. And here's what they are. It says... The Bible says, don't be drunk. We all know that one, right? Don't be drunk. Don't cause others to stumble into sin because of consuming alcohol, right? If, if we're drinking and you're with somebody and it's going to cause them to stumble in their faith, the Bible says, don't do it, right? Here's another one. Don't violate your conscience, right? The word of God's clear that if, if you know what to do and you don't do it, to him it's sin, don't violate your conscience. And the last thing is, nothing should ever be a substitute for faith. When we turn to something instead of turning to Him, that's what Peter's talking about. right? We need to have a heart that's bent on turning to Him, not turning to things that will take our mind off of it. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. And with that, he says, be vigilant. Keep watch. Keep watch. We need to maintain, even in the fog, the thing that's going to take us out of this fog is maintaining a clear vision of where God is taking you, the direction you were headed before you entered into a trial, before you entered into a test, before you entered into life, just absolutely handing you your aspirin, right? We've got to come to the place where, where we have a clear vision of where God's taking us. Because what happens when we lose vision? When we lose sight of our purpose, there's a name for it. It's called depression, right? Depression is when we no longer have something to live for. When we come to the place where we can't see where we're going and all we see is our circumstances, and we become surrounded by apathy. It's that fog, right? Where we feel like we're just sitting there and don't know which way to go or what's going on. And we just wait and wait and wait. In fact, the, the main purpose that the doctors will medicate for depression is to get your mind clear enough where you can see something to live for. And then as you begin to pursue that, they'll pull you off the medication. Now that you have vision again, right? And Peter says right here before they even had medication, keep your eye on the vision. Keep your eye on the direction that God's taking you. And all these things take place when we press into him and not pull away from him, right? 
So then he says one last thing. He says, he says there's this roaring lion that your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. And he says, resist him. Resist him. When my kids were young, they, when they had just gotten out of diapers, uh, they loved playing dress up. Anybody have kids that like playing dress up, right? And I got so tired of laundry because they would, they would go through their drawers and they would like change their clothes like six times a day. <laughs> and did they put the clothes in the dirty clothes basket that were dirty? No. They just put them on the floor. And the clothes that were clean that they took off because they just changed from one outfit to the other. Where'd those go? The floor. Right? And so there was piles of clothes all over the floor. And I was tired of doing laundry. Angie was tired of doing laundry. And we had to, I had to figure out what is clean and what is not. Right? The kids would, would go through the underwear drawer. They'd be digging out the undies. And they're like, you know? This is a funny thing to me. See, as a guy, as a boy, when we're looking for undies, you open the drawer, you reach in, you're half asleep, you grab some undies, right? If it's P.E. day, you grab a pair that don't have a brown streak. <laughs> Simple. Easy. Girls, totally different. Girls, wake up. They look out the window. It's sunny. It's 63 degrees. That makes me feel happy. You know what I'm talking about? I need the underwear that match the feeling of what I'm experiencing, right? Guys, who knew that there's an emotion attached to underwear? It's incredible. So I had to figure out some way to, to deal with these, these too much laundry. And so I deployed something that to young men who are, who are of college age know as the sniff test, right? Yeah, so, so you know, back in the day, you, got a, a, you walk into your room and you got some clothes on the ground, you didn't do your laundry for a week, and, and you're like, oh, I need a shirt for, for, for today. Oh, I'll find a shirt. Grab the shirt. <laughs> oh, I got two days left of that shirt. <laughs> Two-day pile, right? Find another shirt. Pick it up. Uh, one more day at the gym pile, right? So I go in my kid's bedroom, and I'm like, 15,000 pairs of underwear on the floor, and they're all happy. And I'm like, all right, the, the underwear here, what do we got? Um, here's one here. Smells like downy. Drawer, right? I go to the next pair. Pick it up. Oh, good Lord. I only did it once. <laughs> I just washed them all after that. I don't care. I, in fact, I just took them all out of the drawer. Right? I'll just take them all, wash them all at least twice a week. Yeah. Moral of the story, testing stinks. <laughs> testing stinks, right? The trials and the struggles that we go through, it all stinks. But you know what? The Bible tells us in the book of James that somehow, someway, God is leading us to this place where we are able to, to essentially 
say that when I'm going through a test or a trial, that he, he says, consider it pure joy. That's nuts to me, right? But he's leading us to a place where we can recognize that what he's producing through the rough stuff we go through is absolutely a beautiful thing. He says in, in the book of, book of James, he says he's preparing you for anything, right? And there'll come a place in your life where you'll be able to look back and say, you know what? I don't care what comes because I'm ready for anything because of what God's done in me. And I would, I would encourage you guys, if anybody, everybody, who's going through testing or trial or rotten rough stuff, get into the book of James, read it, own it, right? Book of First Peter and Second Peter, read them, own them. Book of Job, go through them, right? You get a handle on God's heart through reading through those and praying through them. But notice this, pardon me, <laughs> still learning this thing. Uh, notice, notice this, Peter did not pray the problem away, right? The church was going through these trials and Peter didn't, or Peter didn't pray him away. What's that all about? Here's the guy who was with the guys when Jesus said to them, ask anything in my name and it'll be done for you. This is the guy who was told this. And yet when the church went through this tremendous trial, he didn't pray it away. He didn't ask the Lord to take it away. But what's he say here in verse 10? He says, may the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. That's tough. Perfect you. Establish you strengthen you, and then settle you. That is a powerful thing when we come to the place through our trials and our tests where we can say, God's going to do something in this. I'm going to cast my cares on him because he's going to do something. And he's going to prepare me. See, testing and trial causes, causes us to feel exposed, insecure, sometimes coming face-to-face with some of our worst fears. But it should always drive us to Jesus. I want to talk to you just a little bit about this roaring lion that Peter's talking about. What do we do when he comes to mess with you? Here's the thing. We, we get ostrich syndrome in the church sometimes. We go through testing and trial, and when it's over, we think, man, good Lord, I'm sure glad that's done, right? And then we pop our head back in the sand, and we just hope that the next one flies by and we don't have to feel it, right? But just like Peter said to the church, why do, you, why do we expect that we're not going to go through trial? But here's something else that we need to expect. Every single time we go through testing, every single time we go through trial, this roaring lion, the devil, is always coming. Always. We've got to expect it. We've got to expect it. If we knew the enemy was coming at our weakest point, would we do something different than we do now? When I was in junior high, I went on a camping trip with some buddies. We went like two or three miles out, and, and as we were going out to this area to go camping, we passed through this like abandoned construction area. There was like some equipment. We went and climbed on it and played on it a little bit, and then off we went. And everything was awesome until about the time the sun was getting ready to go down, and we heard like laser shark wolves howling in the distance. 
right? I mean, they were probably coyotes or wild dogs or something, but we knew that they were the, the hounds of hell coming to kill us. And we were terrified. We were expecting they were going to show up. So what did we do? We decided before the sun goes down, we're going back to that abandoned construction zone, and we got 15 gallons of diesel. And we brought it back, and we, we, we started a campfire the size of your house. It's absolutely a miracle we didn't burn down Washington. I mean, I would say, I used to poke jokes, Obama would have like got pictures from NASA and come after us, right? But Trump, I don't think he'd care. He'd probably just show up with some hot dogs. But it's not, it's not as cool of a joke anymore. But the thing is, if we knew he's coming, we would prepare differently, wouldn't we? We've got to understand that he's coming. Not Trump. The enemy, the devil, who comes around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. He's always going to come in the middle of our circumstances. Why is he coming? To derail you, to offer you something less than faith. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the enemy always wants to bring you something less than faith. Every time he offers you something, every time he offers you a way out, it is a faithless road. It's a road that says, I can do it myself. Yeah, that sounds like a a good way. Here's an example. You're at the office, right? You're wrestling with your marriage. Where's the temptation come? The enemy comes to your head and he says, you know what? You know, your wife, man, she just just doesn't, doesn't even care, right? But Linda over there in, in HR, man, Linda, she's always encouraging you. And you should ask her out for coffee sometime, just as friends, you know. Faithless. Because what does faith say? I'm going to pray for my marriage. And I'm going to believe that it's going to succeed. And I'm going to believe that I'm going to have the best marriage there is, right? Because the grass isn't greener on the other side of the hill. It's greener where you fertilize it and maintain it, right? The enemy always wants to bring something faithless. We can talk about a whole lot of passages in Scripture that talk about the things the devil will bring you, but when you boil them down, he wants to bring you faithlessness. He wants to, he wants to rob you of God's best. And it comes through pride, and it comes through being taking the easy road. So I want to talk just a little bit. We're going to look at Matthew real fast, chapter 4, about how did Jesus deal with temptation. So let's take a look. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to read this. It says, And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights... Afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter had come to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I love this part right here. I've been told many times, the Bible doesn't say Jesus ever said he was God, right? The devil comes to Jesus right here, and he says to him, if you're the son of God, then do this. And Jesus says to him, what did he say to him? You shall not tempt 
the Lord your God. He basically says to him, don't tempt me because I am the son of God, right? This is one example where Jesus says that he is God, that he is the son of God. I am the, I am the father and one, right? There's hundreds of them. I'm going to keep going. And again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things will be given to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And then the devil came, or then, uh, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The enemy always tempts us in one of three ways. When we look in Scripture, we can boil them down. The Bible, Peter, Paul calls them the lust of the flesh. That means stuff that feels good. The enemy always wants to tempt you with stuff that feels good. We have a culture that's, that's wrapped up in, if it feels good, do it, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It's the things that we see. Oh man, my, date, my neighbor Dave, he just got a new boat. I got to get a new boat too now because that is an awesome boat. Well, then you're out and you, you got your boat. Well, Steve over here, he got a bigger boat. Well, I need a bigger boat now. And I need a truck that's bigger than my truck to pull my bigger boat. And I need a bigger garage to park it in my, my, park my bigger boat in. And I need another bay so my truck will fit in there too, right? It, it, it's never ending, the amount of things that we see that we think we must have, Right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, building our kingdom, right? It's about me and me setting up my throne and me having an awesome life and me being the boss. And, you know, by the time I'm 60, I'll be the man, right? It's about bettering our life and building a, building a kingdom for ourselves, right? These are the three areas that, that we get tempted. We're very systematic in our thinking in the U.S., right? In the, in the West, we're very chop, chop, all of our ducks in a row. When, when the Jews wrote, they, they thought differently than we do. They didn't think systematically. They didn't, they didn't line things up, right? We're very linear in our, in our logic. They were very box-like. And so that's why you see um, they'll make a point at the beginning and they'll close it off with, a, with the same point at the end. And they'll kind of fill in stuff in the middle with examples, not systematic facts. And so what you see here is Jesus was tested. He was tempted in probably a hundred different ways. But the examples that, that are written in the gospel essentially say, here's the three types of tempting that Jesus went through. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We see that in all of these. And they're the same way that the enemy would tempt us. But here's the first one. Here's how Jesus deals with this, this first one. Let's take a look at it. Jesus had been, had been fasting for 40 days. He was hungry, and the enemy comes to him and says, hey, why don't you turn that rock into bread? Wouldn't it feel good to eat? Right? What's that one? Lust of the flesh, right? It would feel so good. You wouldn't be hungry anymore. And Jesus says, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He knows the word of God. Guys, this is where it starts. If we're going to get a handle on the enemy that's going to come to us every time we're going through a testing or a trial, we've got to know that the word of God is the infallible, absolute word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 
says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, ouch, for instruction, in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We've got to settle that the Word of God is God's infallible Word, and we've got to stand on it. Right? That's what Jesus did. He stood on it. Sometimes these things don't feel so good. The Word of God corrects us and it shapes us, but when we come out the other side, we're transformed. So the next thing, this, this, this devil, he comes to Jesus and he takes him to Jerusalem up to the top of the, the, top of the temple and he says, hey, just throw yourself down. The angels will catch you. It's the pride of life. You're somebody, aren't you? If you throw yourself off of here because you're somebody, the angels are going to catch you right up. Right? And like we talked about before, he says, he says to him, if you're the son of God, but he, his rebuttal is, I am the son of God. I am the son of God. Here's the thing, though. The enemy came to him with Scripture. Jesus started off by saying, the Word of God says this. Satan came back and said, yeah, but the Word of God says this too. Right? Here's the thing. Knowing the Word of God is not enough. I know that sounds like a really terrible thing to say, right? Knowing the Word of God is, is, is like our compass. Right? If we're navigating our plane, it's like our compass. The Word of God is like our compass. But we also cannot divorce the Word of God from the heart of God. The amount of arguments that have taken place between churches and between Christians who are supposed to love one another because they'll argue Scripture and say, the Bible says this. Oh yeah, but it says this too. And we get in, we get in headbutting competitions over the Word of God because we miss the heart of God. We cannot separate God's heart from His Word. Because that's what Jesus did right there. He said, you know what? Even though the enemy used Scripture, Jesus knew the heart of God. In fact, in Job chapter 42, I I love this this picture in Job. Um, Job had had gone through so many things with his friends, or or, or with with temptation and trial and all these, this wrestling. And at the end of all of the stuff that Job had gone through, God essentially tells Job, let me back up, let's see if I can paint a better picture. I want to fly through this as quick as I can because I want to let you guys get out of here. But here's the thing, Job essentially is throwing dishes at God. Job's going through some stuff and Job doesn't understand why. And so we see through about 39 chapters of this book, God saying, saying, saying to God, I'm God, I'm upset. I'm ticked. I don't know why this is going on. And Job's friends come out. He's got three friends that show up and say, well, Job, you're going through this because you must have sin in your life. Job, you're going through this because you don't have enough faith. Job, you're going through this because, and they would constantly tell Job why he, he's probably going through this stuff and how he just wasn't doing it right, right? But in the meantime, Job was actually talking to God. and having a relationship intimately with him, even though he didn't understand why he was going through the things he was wrestling with. And at the end, we see God confront Job's friends and say to them, 
you guys were in sin because you missed my heart. Job didn't. Job was in intimate relationship with God, even though he was upset. We can do the same. God is not afraid of your feelings. He gave them to you. He gave you emotion. He gave you feeling for a reason, right? We've got to take those things and harness them and take them to the the living God and say, God, I don't understand this. Lord, would you help me to understand this? And God, I'm mad and I'm upset and I'm hurt and I'm wounded and, and I don't understand. Lord, help. Right? And the enemy would want to come to you and say, ah, you got sin in your life. Oh, you're faithless. Oh, that happened because something about you. Right? When God says, I regardless of why it happened, I love you. I'm going to walk you through this because I care about you. And we're going to see through the other side of this. Because that's God's character. And the third thing He says Satan says to Jesus, "Just fall down and worship me." I'll give you everything, right? The lust of the eyes. And Jesus says, get behind me. Get out of here. Take a hike, right? He knew God's place in his life. He knew the Father's place of authority over where he was at. Here's the question that I have for for every one of us today. What's God's place in your life? What's the place of Jesus in your life? Is Jesus a religious figure? Is Jesus a great teacher? Or is Jesus the son of the living God? The forgiver of your sins, the embracer of the suffering and the weak. Who is he to you? And I want to, I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you today to see him differently. The Bible says that God loves you. He believes the best about you. Regardless of your circumstances, he wants to embrace you and walk through them with you. He loves you. Regardless of your past, regardless of your sin, regardless of your failure, he loves you. He wants to give you a new identity. He wants to call you a new creation. And it comes through viewing him differently and surrendering to him. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today and Lord, we've talked